Hello there. Hey, Edwin. How are you? Good. Um, well, welcome back to the land of the living. <laughs> yes, I think you see why I was hiding now. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> um, uh, I, 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 uh, everything okay? You feel all right? Oh, yeah. I'm doing good. Yeah. It was, I'll tell good. you, sprinting through a book in three months is not, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but I'm glad it's out. No. And, and you know, I'm happy with the reception so far. I, I you know, I, 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 I think as you know, as we've done a couple times on this show, um, I really have dedicated myself over the past year or so to just like exposing as much as what I can, uh, of what I can, um, of what happened on January 6th. And right, because you were there and, you know, I mean, it's a p powerful day for the country. Yeah, I was there live and I, I walked away that day and I said, you know what? It is apparent to me um, for various reasons that we can get into that, you know, the White House was involved here, that Congress was involved here. It was apparent to me that this was a literally deadly, serious attack on our country. Um, and I've basically worked ever since then um, to detail that as much as I could. And that work, you know, brought me in touch with um, former Congressman Riggleman, um, who um, had been advising the committee. Um, and when I understood the story he had to tell, I, I jumped on board. And um, I'm very, very glad we were able to tell it. Yeah, I am too. Um, let me ask you just a couple questions about, um, sort of generally about the book, and then we can get into some of the details. Um, to mm -hmm. me, um, the book reads angry, angry at the right wing, which abandoned conservatism. Now I'm talking about his voice. I mean, you, you, you write this and it's in, it's in his voice, Congressman. Yes. Um, but it sounds in like angry about the abandonment of conservatism, angry at the rise of Christian nationalism, angry at the embrace of crazy conspiracy theories in places. Um, Riggleman sounds like, um, you know, like a man betrayed. Is that a fair reading? Well, you know, I'm really glad you're starting there because, again, first off, you know, I'm a reporter. Um, I've covered the Trump White House. I've covered January 6th. But this is Denver Riggleman's story. Um, and essentially what you're looking at is sort of a as-told-to work of journalism where I kind of you right. know, helped him, helped him put it all together, helped him say what he had to say. And, you know, in addition to all this new evidence, that he's presenting, he also tells his personal story. And that personal story begins, you know, growing up in Virginia in a, you know, died in the wool Republican household. I mean, it wasn't even a question. These were, you know, religious Mormon conservatives. Um, and, you know, growing up, going into the military where he gained some intelligence experience, that, you know, we can get into. And then I think to find, you know, his investigative techniques and how he processed everything that he looked at after January 6th. But then, you know, beginning a political career in a sort of weird accidental way. I mean, he, he, he was part of this sort of, you know, long shot gubernatorial campaign because he owned a distillery. He was basically mad at the liquor board over there in Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. And then through that, he had a little bit of notoriety. He, again, of course, ran as a Republican because we're talking about a lifelong conservative. Um, and, you know, there was this situation where the sitting congressman down there had an ethics flap and basically the state committee had five days to find a replacement. It wasn't a primary. It was a backroom vote. So Denver ends up becoming a one term congressman, um, you know, after a five day 
sprint where he only had to get, I think, less than 20 votes. Um, so it was a totally right. weird deal. He called himself the accidental congressman. He comes in there and, you know, in part because of the district he came from um, and, you know, agreements he made with that committee, uh, he joined the, the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative part of the House Republican Party. Um, you know, and he, he reckons with, you know, his own culpability there and, 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 you know, everything that that means. But he has this view from inside the GOP as it's essentially turning towards Trump and turning towards QAnon. And he draws on his life experience to really, you know, track that whole change. Um, and the party quite literally left him. I mean, while he's in Congress, he officiates a gay wedding for two of his campaign volunteers. So again, conservative guys, but they were gay. Um, and this resulted in his family getting death threats, their car getting sabotaged, he says. Um, you know, just vile stuff directed his way. And he also lost the support of the local party apparatus that had put him in office. So the far well, right... Hunter, hang on. Hang, hang, out on. Of Congress. hang on. He also lost the support of his mother. And you write about that, too, when he when sort of... He, you know, his mother texted him when he was starting to turn on QAnon, and she didn't believe it. She's like, what's wrong with you? You're smarter than the truth, is what the the, the text she sent him. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, he goes into the toll that this shift towards the conspiracy MAGA right took within his own family. Um, and he also combines that. I mean, this is a guy who spent decades as an Air Force intelligence officer and working with the NSA before he was ever involved um, in politics. And, you know, one thing he says is that, you know, both in terms of digital radicalization and recruitment and operationally, he saw some of the January 6th plotters and rioters use techniques that he had seen before when he was tracking Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And what do I mean by that on the operational front? Um, you know, they were switching cell phones, moving to encrypted apps. There were multiple cells moving towards the same goal. Um, so he really uses that personal experience and military expertise to frame the MAGA wing of the Republican Party as a militant Christian nationalist movement. And he really, I think, convincingly, and I mean, I, I helped him articulate it, but this is all his opinion. He really, you know, um, makes the case that QAnon and the digital conspiracy fever swamps are a major, major driver of all this, the same way sort of YouTube videos were with ISIS. Yeah. Um, and Part of the reason that these things are so effective is because they are designed to appeal to religious Christians. They are designed to, you know, light up the frontal lobes of people like those he grew up with. And part of that is that they are, you know, QAnon at its root is a violent conspiracy theory that builds off the sort of medieval era blood libel myths about the Jews, right? So QAnon is sort of the super strain of drug-resistant, far-right radicalization that was designed to appeal, you know, to people with conservative leanings and particularly religious people. And I think, you know, Denver has such unique experience between his expertise and his upbringing and his credibility, frankly, within the party that, you know, he's really laying that out in a way that I think we haven't discussed before. Yeah, it, um, it was painful to, to read. Um, interesting, sort of about the history of QAnon how it began in 2017 and sort of how um, 
you know, Christian nationalism and the, and QAnon came together and sort of merged into this this movement that Trump was only too happy to uh, step into. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, it's ironic because QAnon, you know, the central violent fantasy at the heart of QAnon is that Trump and some people are, you know, inside his government are working against these globalist forces and, you know, pedophiles who want to, um, you know, groom children um, and that, you know, Justice will be done, the QAnoners say, uh, in a coming event called the quote-unquote storm, um, where basically, you know, Trump and his allies, you know, kill the the, the traitors and these dark forces in our government. Um, and, you know, I, I hate to use their terminology, but the whole thing, Trump's rise, what was going on online, uh, the pandemic, when everybody was staying home, you know, on their computers, was really a perfect storm that supercharged all of this and led yeah. to the violence that we saw on January 6th. So, so you know, the world has always had crackpots and nutcases and uh, end-of-day sort of eschatological believers, but what your book begins to lay out is this isn't a bunch of, you know, sort of crackpots in their basement. It's like a third of Congress. It's Jenny Thomas. It, I mean, it's, it's all kind it's a bunch of CEOs. It's a very big and powerful group in America. Hey, absolutely. So, you know, in addition, you know, Den Denver says, he is, you know, through his military background and NSA background, he's a data guy. He's about the ones and zeros. This is not his opinion. It's a lot more than that. We go into a lot of the raw data um, that his team helped compile for the January 6th committee. Um, and that data, particularly Mark Meadows' text logs, really shows, you know, all, I, I can say that this was a perfect storm. I can talk about the appeal of QAnon, but this did not happen uh, without really serious political, military, and media infrastructure. And we begin to see that exposed, um, first off in Mark Meadows' texts, where you see members of Congress, where you see Fox News personalities, where you see Mike the MyPillow guy, where you see local politicians, people from every level of government, Jenny Thomas, you know, texting just the most deranged conspiracy theories, mining information from sources like the website, quote unquote, some bitch told me. That's something that was shared by Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar. And, and really self-radicalizing and reinforcing each other and then enacting a detailed political plan to, you know, overturn the election while they were clearly true believers in this just absolutely deranged stuff from the Internet. And then the other big piece of raw data that we review in the book are these phone link maps. Denver's team obtained these phone records of basically various persons of interest, including, um, you know, DOJ charged rioters who entered the building, you know, people who were known to have played a big role in the election conspiracy movement, uh, high level Trump associates. They obtained these phone records and you can basically build um, with high level intelligence software a link map that shows the different points of data. And, you know, the points are one person on one end of a phone call. And then there's a link line that shows who was on the other end of that call. 
And the sum total of these maps, millions of lines of data that took hours to load on, you know, computers with whirring fans and huge servers, the, the sum total is that the political and military components of January 6th were inextricably linked, and those lines went all the way up to Trump himself. There was quite literally a call coming from inside the White House. Yeah, so the book begins with the conclusion. There's an author's note at the top, and Riggleman says, um, and I'm just going to read from it, the book makes a simple case. There is a growing militant far-right Christian nationalist movement that's being fueled by online disinformation. That movement now uh, constitutes an extremist wing of the Republican Party, the party I once belonged to, and it poses a serious danger to our democracy. I mean, he just lays that out at the beginning, and the rest of the book is sort of the story of how you guys, how he got there, and he told it. Um, I, let's just back up because you mentioned these two things, and I want to be clear with everybody because we're going to spend some time on data here. So the the, the Mark Meadows um, turns over 2,319 text messages, and that that forms the sort of starting point for for uh, uh, this search. And then, um, the, uh, Riggleman and let's, let's everybody know he was a staff member of the January 6th committee. Um, he, he also now identifies because the people are on trial for what they did on January 6th. He starts to identify, um, people who were involved and he, and he looks at their phones and, uh, public phone records to see who's talking to whom. And he makes these maps, these lines that connect different phone calls. And when you lay them all out, they form a map, right? Mm -hmm. And the map has a couple of clusters of groups who are talking mm -hmm. to each other. And I think, I, as, I, as I recall, um, there may have been three or four of these clusters. There, there, there were, I mean, there, there's a couple ways of talking about it, but there were, you know, six major groups, I think. But, you know, yep. the big ones are you know, the rioters, um, yep. what they call Trump associates. This includes members of his family, um, a cell phone belonging to Trump himself was mapped by the committee. Um, people like Roger Stone, high level advisors, Rudy Giuliani, again, Mike, the MyPillow guy. Then you've got kind of rally planners, figures like Amy Kramer, um, who I think yep. I've talked about on your show before, who sort of helped put together, you know, the various events around the country that challenged the election. Um, you've got members of Congress. I mean, you know, I, I, I uh, forgive me, I forget offhand what what some of the breakdowns were. But but the key thing is, I mean, you know, I'll just point to one sub map. So they called the large map the monster, and it literally took hours to load. Um, and it showed that everything was linked. But one of the more dramatic maps, I think, was this one that shows the rally planners, the Oath Keepers, and the Proud Boys. And it made a clear pyramid. And essentially, the base of the pyramid was these two militant groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. There was an incredibly thick line of communication between these two groups. And then, going up from either one, they were both in touch with the rally planners. And then if you go out from there, these rally planners were in touch with the Trump associates. You know, you start to see that the president was just a couple degrees removed from these militants. That his close well, and what, in some cases, people like Roger Stone were, were one degree from the militants. Right. I wanted to get there because what, what you showed in the data in this monster, this map of these clusters of people all working towards the same goal, was that, that really four people... Um, two of them are names that folks who are listening to the show will know. 
Roger Stone and Alex Jones, but there was also Kristen Davis and Bianca Gracia. Those four people were fully connecting all of the clusters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, all very I, close to Trump. Yeah, I just want to say first off, Edwin, that that a you know I really appreciate you because I think you've been very clear-eyed about how serious January sixth was, you know, and you've given me a lot of opportunity to come on and sort of detail my own work, showing this higher level of involvement because I quite literally think you know the fact that we had members of Congress and the president, you know, orchestrating a violent attack on an election, it's the most urgent story. Uh, certainly of my lifetime. I'm 38 years old. Um, And I appreciate that you're talking about this in a technical way, because one thing I just want to say up front before we dig into these people like Bianca Gracia, uh, former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio and Roger Stone, what we know, everything that's in this book. I mean, this book, I think, you know, The Breach has some of the most complete and dramatic information based on raw data about what happened to January 6th at the highest levels. But what we know is only the tip of the iceberg. The book details that all these text conversations that I was detailing to you before that show these people at every level of government just plotting and and the utter derangement of the information they were basing these plots on. We only saw those texts because Mark Meadows handed them over to the committee. It's one of the enduring mysteries why he did that, but he didn't hand over his entire phone and he stopped cooperating at some point. So we know all this crazy stuff and that's what Mark was willing to let us see. God knows what else is out there, right? One thing we see in the texts and we see in the phone records of these people, and I should be clear, you called them public phone records before. They are not entirely public. This is stuff that the committee was essentially able to subpoena mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. From telecommunications companies. Um, but what we see in some of these communications is people saying things, including members of Congress, like, let's move to Signal, right, which is an encrypted app. We have no idea what they were saying in the encrypted spaces, right? Um, right. Also, the committee has limited authority. It can get these phone records, but as we've seen, it cannot, you know, directly issue criminal charges. Um, they could not, um, Denver details this a lot in the book, they could not get physical location data, Um, They could not necessarily get the content of text messages. One thing that was a shocking revelation to me, your text messages, even if they're not on an encrypted app, are a lot safer than you might realize. Um, And what do I mean by that? Um, Phone companies only hold the content of the messages. It actually depends on the phone company somewhere between five and 30 days. So apart from Mark Meadows, weirdly, and again, we don't purport to understand it, weirdly handing over these 2,319 messages, um, we we don't have the content of other people's texts. We can just see that they texted each other, right? And then also we bring up Roger Stone. So this is getting back to your, your original question. I'm sorry, there's just like so much to parse here. You know, yep. some of these central figures who were connected to the most, the most diverse array of groups, sort of people we see as some of the key connectors really in the middle of the plot were Roger Stone, Trump's longtime advisor, his assistant, Kristen Davis, better known as the so-called quote-unquote Manhattan madam, um, a former you know, escort madam who um, you know, ended up developing a close relationship with Roger Stone, Enrique Tarrio, the former chairman of the Proud Boys, and then Bianca Gracia. And both Bianca and um, Enrique 
were involved in this group called Latinos for Trump. It wasn't an official campaign group. Um, it's really not entirely clear what they did. But the two of them are direct associates. They were in touch with Stone's apparatus. And in the case of Bar- Bianca Garcia, you can actually see on the link maps, she was in touch with the White House. This woman is one of the closest associates of the Proud Boys. Um, so we see all this stuff, and it's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they didn't get Roger Stone's call records. They tried. He's fighting that in court. We see him on the maps because they were able to find his phone number by analyzing Kristen Davis's records. So, again, we know all this stuff. This data paints, I think, the clearest picture of high-level political and low-level militant involvement being linked in what we saw on January 6th. It's shocking. It shocked me as someone who's researched this for months, um, over a year even, um, and yet, you know, it is just the beginning of what could be well, out so there. Let's talk about that for a second. I don't want to dwell on that too much, but it's fair to unpack it. The, the January 6th committee, it, it, it has some limits on what it can do. I mean, in, in yeah. that's part of, you know, it's America and people's privacy is pretty well guarded and protected. And I, I know that Riggleman thought they should go further and be more aggressive than they were. They also had a limited budget. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of realities of a congressional yeah. committee. Um, and he's used to the the unlimited budget of the Defense Department and the tools they have <laughs> to analyze yeah. folks who are not U.S. citizens, right? We, U.S. citizens have protections around them, even if they're criminals. And, and Congress doesn't have that kind of power. On the other hand, the Justice Department has a whole lot more investigative tools, and they are having a a, a separate path, um, which is including, I believe, looking at Mr. Meadows and others. So I'm not I'm not worried that the that the truth won't come out. And the truth that has already come out is more than enough (laughs) to tell us the story, right? You guys have done such a great job in laying out the connections between individuals and organizations um, uh, following the money too. We could talk about that Um, and their, and their clear intent. And you've tied it back to these enormous social problems that are stemming from conspiracy theories and Christian nationalism around the country. And I think you did a remarkable job, even though there's more. And I think we'll get to the more, but but again, Congress has, I think, for good reason, some limitations. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's an important point to make, but you know, I do hope we find out more. Um, you know, let me just give you an example of you know how important some of these leads are. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Denver and his team did that we detail in the breach is they figured out how to find White House phone numbers on these link maps, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, to be clear, they don't have the White House phone records. They were looking at other people's phone records and they started to identify numbers that belonged to the White House. Um, Hunter, pause for one what? second. Mm-hmm. Pause for one second. It's related to this. Um, everyone has to remember, right? The official White House logs say there were no phone calls in or out of the White House from 1117 to 654 on January 6th. That's during the attack on the Capitol. Your book proves that's a lie. And and um, and now keep going. 
Yeah, Denver begins the book by saying, you know, the White House went dark for this period and it was his job to see into the dark. Um, and he, he did an incredible job with that. Um, and one of the things he found was that, you know, at 4 something p.m., I think 434, um, you know, don't quote me on that. It's been a long week. Um, as the riot was underway, um, you know, this call went out to this man who CNN has since identified as Anton Lunick, um, who had gone into the cap. He was one of the rioters. Now, Lunick mm-hmm. claims he doesn't know anyone at the White House. I mean, I guess theoretically it could be a coincidence, but what a stunning one if it is. Um, and, um, you know, um, that is the first reported instance of a direct link between the Trump West Wing and a rioter while the attack was underway. Now, I don't mm-hmm. purport to know what it means, but, you know, it, 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 I think it's best to talk about this in simple terms. That is a direct link between the White House and the rioter. It will take the DOJ, it will take the committee, you know, to fully detail what that means. But the public should Correct. be clear that it happened. A call came from the White House. Um, another one of these White House calls that we saw in there, A, again, Bianca Gracia was in touch with them. Um, and then, you know, B, uh, Kelly Sorrell, this woman who was general counsel of the Oath Keepers, she took over as president um, when Stuart Rhodes, their founder, um, was jailed as part of these seditious conspiracy charges they're facing as part of their role in the attack. Um, Kelly Sorrell texted a White House landline, uh, not on January 6th, but, you know, in the lead up to it, as people were sort of challenging the election. Now, you know, who texts a landline, right? What is that? I tended to think, you know, I tended to think it was important to get everything out there, but that that wasn't one of our more dramatic findings, right? But I thought it was important because it at least shows that at the very least, you know, this member of the Oath Keepers thought she maybe had an ally in the White House, even if she didn't know how to reach them. Well, guess what? Since the publication of The Breach this week, um, two reporters at NBC News, Ben Collins and Ryan Riley, called Kelly Sorrell. And they first off found out that despite the fact that, that the committee has this data, no one had talked to Kelly Sorrell. No one had followed up on it and asked her about this. Right. And when they did, guess what she said? Oh, yeah, I was in touch with Andrew Giuliani. And I was working with him on the election. Now, Andrew Giuliani is the son of Mayor Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's closest associates, uh, his former uh, former I don't even know, personal attorney. Um, mm-hmm. And Andrew Giuliani was a White House staffer. And Andrew, Andy Giuliani was a Republican candidate for governor in New York as of a couple months ago. So you have this, this super well-connected major Republican and Andy Giuliani, and he's working directly with the Oath Keepers, a militant group. And... No one had followed up on that lead, and we put it out in this book. I think it's great. I mean, I you know there there are a billion leads. I'm pr- I'm proud of the committee, the work it's doing. But as you point out, they can't get to everything, and so it's all hands on deck right now. And y- y- you you guys are doing really important work. Um, well, uh, to be very clear, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize the committee at all. I know um, you're not. You know, for, I know for it's a big being job. Being on the committee was was an honor of a lifetime. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he says that in the book. And again, he, he, you know, he sees this book as something that supports the committee. Right. Um, I know. I, he's very clear. He, he would have been more aggressive. He says you haven't t- talked about this. You know, he's critical of some things that happen, but everybody's critical of things that happen. In the, in the end, though, he's very proud of the committee, of the work, of the time he spent on it. He views it as a as a patriotic imperative. I mean, he, he, I don't want to leave the impression 
that that he and you are really cr- are critical. I mean, you know, the things that you would have had them do that they haven't done, but that that is neither you know that doesn't take away from the good right. work that's being done. But also, I mean, let's be clear when we're talking about budgets. You know, he'd like them to have more authorities. He'd like yeah. them to have bigger staff. And I think yep. part of the reason that we're having this conversation is the public should support the committee, and it shouldn't be a political problem for the committee, you know, to get bigger and do more. And frankly, we're potentially going to see the opposite happening. I mean, if Republicans take over the House, and he details this in the book as well, you know, they could shut down the committee and frankly turn it into an investigation of the investigation, a conspiracy-fueled, you know, Benghazi-like chase, you know, to make the committee the villains rather than these militants who stormed into the building. So I think that's part of why it's urgent and important for people to understand just how much is out there, you know, and just how much we needed this committee. Hunter, that um, is cue for me to ask you, because they will do exactly that. And the chair of that witch hunt will be Jim Jordan. So cue Jim Jordan. He appears in this book. Yeah, one of the revelations from Mark Meadows' text is that Jim Jordan was actually leading, you know, as much as up to 50 members of Congress who were actively working on efforts to overturn the election. I mean, let's be clear, we knew members of Congress were involved because 147 of them, I think, you know, uh, voted against the election. But there was this core group that was sort of witch hunting for fraud examples you know, trying to come up with all mm-hmm. sorts of strategies to challenge the election at every level. And and based on Mark Meadows' text, Jim Jordan seemed to be leading that effort, which was headquartered at CPI, a conservative partnership institute, a dark money group in Washington that later employed Meadows and gave him massive sums. So, so again, you know, this is this the same group that Ginny Thomas spent so much time with? I'm, I mean, she she has so many associations. I'm not even sure, you know, okay. Which, which, okay. which one. But but you know, what, what what I would say to you is the two central revelations in the breach, which I co-wrote with Denver Riggleman, are number one, the military and political components of January sixth were directly linked, and number two, you know, sort of extending from that, there was massive infrastructure behind this push to attack our election um, and the violent attack on the Capitol. And that infrastructure included members of Congress, rally planners, militant groups, members of the media, you know, um, digital things like people like Patrick Byrne, the former CEO of Overstock, who were throwing money behind getting crazy, you know, easily debunked lies about the election into the digital bloodstream. There was real effort, organization, and infrastructure here, both on the political front and in the violence. Uh, and and you have, I mean, you're, the case that you're making is, um, it is based on data and very clear data and, um, mm-hmm. um, but, but surrounded by anecdotes that help us understand the data. And I, I just thought it was a, a, I mean, you know, the breach is in the bookstores, everybody. I mean, go get it. It's, it's a, it's a, won't take you forever. It's not like reading war and peace, um, but it's really clear. And it's a very compelling story. Um, well, can thank you so much. Something- Edwin, and I, I would say, I, I just do want to say, 
A, we tried to make it a fast-paced and engaging read um, while it is dealing with all these weighty topics. And B, you know, if you want to just pick it up at your library, I love libraries. You know, to me, it's important that this story gets out. I would love if people buy a copy, but, but, you know, more importantly, pick one up wherever you can get it, pass it to your friends, because I think, you know, this proof and, and this message that there is a militant Christian nationalist wing of the Republican Party, that they organize behind an effort to attack the Capitol and that it could happen again is one of the most urgent conversations we need to be having at the public. I'm, I'm sorry, as the public, and I'm, I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but like, I'm just like, I feel like I'm, I'm like chicken little. I'm like, please, people pay attention to this data. Please, let's have this conversation. So I really do yeah. hope people will read the breach. And, and folks, that is, of course, what this next election is about, right? Whether you whether we want to put gasoline on that fire or water on it and try and put it out. That is entirely what we're faced in the next less than 50 days, right? Because the election's already started, ends in about 50 days. Um, Hunter, I, let's turn from the uh, horror that you've talked about to the, I, I don't know, low humor part of it, which is the grift, just the entirely greedy. I mean, you also spend some time on that. Uh, you know, talk about the money that went to Don Jr.'s girlfriend for the privilege of introducing him. Talk about Bannon's crypto scheme. Um, you know, I, I mean, they may have been out there in the news, but I only found out about them reading your book. Well, you know, that really came from Denver. Denver was really adamant that at every level that we see this going on, obviously some people are getting power, but other people are getting money. Um, this group CPI, I think when he left, um, where Mark Meadows was, uh, sorry, this group CPI where Jim Jordan was headquartered and, um, you know, working to overturn the election. Um, when Trump left the White House, Mark Meadows went there and I got like a seven-figure giant sum um, for working with these people. Um, as, as you outlined, and we really tell the story of it in this book, um, Steve Bannon and Boris Epstein had crypto ventures that were such blatant pump and dumps that multiple levels of publishing house lawyers allowed me to use the phrase, quote unquote, pump and dump, right? Um, in part because like this crypto that they were selling to people, and it was called FJB, um, short for, I don't think I can say it, F Joe Biden, um, you know, Bannon was framing this as this alternate cons- currency that would, you know, help people if, you know, sort of the deep state globalists turned into jackbooted thugs and come to your doors. Well, of course, it completely crashed and it had a mechanism built into it that prevented people from selling until right after the mechanism was released. Right. Yeah. So basically, you bought this thing and if it crashed, you might not be able to sell it until other people cashed out. Well, if that's not grip, I don't know what is, right? And then, of course, you know, in addition to things like crypto schemes and dark money, the reality is traffic on the Internet makes money, right? And there's a lot of people, you know, on YouTube and on major platforms who are making money off the effectiveness and the viral spread of QAnon. I mean, one example that, that Denver and I noticed just in the past week or so um, you know, if you saw Trump had this big rally in Ohio, and there's been a lot of coverage that it was sort of the most direct embrace of QAnon that we've seen from the Republican Party. And that extended to this moment where 
where they played this weird, like eerie orchestral anthem as people put their one finger up in the air and Trump spoke. And that anthem is actually by a guy who who goes by the pseudonym Dick Feelgood, right? And it's called WWG1WGA, which is the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all. And this guy, Dick Feelgood, has a series of, of, of QAnon songs that he's made. And guess where you can hear them? Spotify. So, so this major company, Spotify, is literally profiting off every stream of this, mm-hmm. you know, violent, dangerous content. Yeah. I, <laughs> we're a complicated country. Boy, and if there's money to be made, people are going to make it off the good and ill. And, um, and and it's been, I mean, you know, Fox has been laughing all the way to the bank for years at the expense of the country. And now we see they've been outdone even by the stuff online. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, there's a connection between Fox and this stuff. No question. You know, they were a key part of advancing it. Uh, Fox News personalities are all over Mark Meadows' text. Um, one of the stories that's come out of the breach um, is that Sean Hannity's radio producer was trying to work with Jim Jordan and others and Meadows, um, you know, on on finding supposed fraud examples. And, you know, I feel obligated whenever I bring up this stuff to note that, like, officials at every level of government, including from Trump's own administration, Republican state officials have affirmed that there was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. Um, but, you know, Fox News people were involved in all of this, but it's gone beyond Fox now, right? We have One American News. We have Right Side Broadcasting Network. Um, one thing that I saw in my own reporting for Rolling Stone when I was looking at Amy Kramer's March for Trump bus tour, Right Side Broadcasting Network was involved in that. They provided funding. They were embedded on the buses as people traveled around over the, uh, the country, you know, espousing violent rhetoric and challenging the election. Um, so right wing media is getting more and more extreme. When I say more and more extreme, I just mean in terms of being divorced from reality. You know, we can all have conservative policy arguments, right? We can all have right versus left policy arguments. But, you know, when you see something like a sitting congressman send a web link, you know, containing absolutely unhinged, you know, strings of numbers and, you know, BS allegations of the election and, and, you know, paranoid fever dreams about sort of, you know, the deep state coming to your house. And it's coming from a website called Some Bitch Told Me, where someone's making money. We're watching people, including elected officials, being radicalized by sources that are, you know, more fringe and and yep. fantastical than we've ever seen before. Well, you I mean, you quote one of Ginny Thomas's, Thomas's texts. And I read it three times. I still don't fully understand what she's talking about because it's batshit crazy. I'm sorry, I can't say that. It's, <laughs> but it's 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 madness. I mean, and, and I think she said that as she's writing, you know, uh, Joe Biden and his family are being taken prisoner and are going to be shipped to Gitmo. I mean, it was just yeah. nutty. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, there's there's totally totally crazy stuff. I mean. You know, and and it was weird trying to sort of, I mean, one story we go into tremendous detail on 
Um, you know, Trump has retweeted, you know, prior to, you know, very yep. directly embracing QAnon at this rally, he's retweeted all these QAnon accounts. And one story that we detail is there's this guy, I think his name is Alan Parrott, right? And, and you know, through this weird conservative conference, right, he was presented with this wild tale where he basically claims that, like, SEAL Team 6 was all murdered because they really didn't kill Osama and there were body doubles and this and that. And this was advanced by a Roger Stone affiliated, you know, uh, conservative conference, dark money flying all around. And then it made it all the way directly to Trump's Twitter. So we try to track some of these, you know, specific wild conspiracy theories just as examples of A, how much money behind is behind them and B, how deranged they are. And, you know, we're and literally clear in your book, you warn people that they should have, a, I think, a glass of scotch before they read that <laughs> section because it's so crazy. Well, well, Denver is a whiskey distiller. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, he definitely <laughs> recommends as you sit down and you read the breach that you buckle up. And whether that's wh- 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 whether that's whiskey or a strong cup of coffee, you know, I think I think, look, it's an important message to get out there, but it's not one that I like delivering, you know. Yeah. And um, again, even if someone, you know, I, I began this conversation saying to you that I was there on January 6th. And just from the fact that we tr- saw Trump in st- on stage saying, quote unquote, fight like hell, that we saw these months of rallies that we, uh, you know, that included a Marine One flyover, which we document how that happened um, for the first mm-hmm. time in this book, The Breach, uh, that we saw members of Congress voting against the election. We knew there was high level involvement, but but talking with Denver was the first time I realized, A, just how deep it went and B, just how crazed it all was. Um, and so I think it's an incredibly urgent, important message, but it's, it's terrifying. And, you know, I'll, I'll close by saying, you know, when you alluded to this, these elections are coming up. And, you know, right in the days after January 6th, we saw Republican members of Congress like Louis Gohmert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And again, we detail this in the book. They were texting Mark Meadows, you know, beginning the next conspiracy theory which was that January 6th was really Antifa. And there's no basis for this. And, you know, we talk about Roger Stone being the founding father of the Stop the Steal movement. And that's because quite literally, he debuted the quote-unquote Stop the Steal concept in spring of 2016, when he was vowing that the 2016 election was going to be stolen. He, he, you know, quietly, quietly dropped that completely once he liked the result. But, you know, this shows how brazen it is, and it shows how, you know, this new authoritarian element to our discourse where, you know, devotees of Trump and QAnon will refuse to accept election results. It shows how it's something that, you know, started in 2016, even when he won. It didn't go away, and I see no sign that it's gone away now. Hunter, you, you get towards the end and, and write, and let me again read again. Most important, we definitively showed that the attack on the Capitol had clear command and control elements. That means mission, mission planning, intent. The MAPS, my team, Riggleman's team, made showed robust linkages among the military groups. They were coordinating in the weeks, days, and hours ahead of the attack. The data also highlighted liaisons between the more official side of the plot and armed extremists. There was a plan, there was a vision, and all lines pointed straight up to President Trump. America uh, listened to Hunter 
read the book. It's a dangerous, dangerous time. Um, but you all can do something about it. You have 45 or so days to do it. Hunter, thank you as always. It's great to catch up again after uh, a break, and I can see why you you needed the time. Let's stay in touch because this story is, um, as you say, it's one of the biggest of our lifetimes. So let's stay in touch. Always great to talk to you, Edwin. I look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the book. Thanks very much. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right, Paul. Um, uh, if you, Paul, um, can I uh, record an intro? Hunter and I just got right into it and I didn't introduce him. Okay. Uh, Hunter Walker is back with me again. You, you remember, he uh, is Washington, D.C.-based journalist with one blockbuster piece after another in Rolling Stone uh, and, and the uprising of journal. He uh, keeps of the sort of mess that our democracy is in. Um, uh, he was a regular contributor on this show until about March when he took on a new project. That project turns out to be a blockbuster book, The Breach, which he co-authored um, with a former GOP congressman turned staffer to the January 6th committee. Um, and the book is now out and confirms so many of the things that we've been talking about. Hunter, um, it's good to have you back. Um, uh, Paul, I might want to excerpt some of this throughout the week and just take bits of it. And I mean, it, this we shouldn't wait on all of this. So if you could get me a recording, I'll look for the parts that we want to sort of cut and maybe just put online. Well, it's not going to air tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow's fully booked. Yeah. Well, or put it on SoundCloud or something. Okay, thank you. Perfect, thank you. Bye.